Alan Robinson. I've made a few. Tyler Lockett. I've had my Many of you are champions, and you won your leagues using zero RB, but don't tell anybody this. Do not remind anyone that zero RB was a winning strategy in 2016. Allow the narrative to be cultivated, to grow, to blossom. The robust RB narrative could become so strong by the time we get to August that only one wide receiver is drafted in the first round, Antonio Brown. That could happen. It's conceivable that we have 11 running backs and one wide receiver drafted in the first round in 2017. This is in the range of outcomes for fantasy drafts next year. I can't wait. I can't wait. We want this to happen. We need this to happen. All of us that understand the fundamental tenets of zero RB need to be quiet. I'll write an article about Robust RB myself in my own blood, yes. But when you hold it up to a mirror, it will read wide receiver times six, yes. But there's no disputing. In 2016, we experienced an RB renaissance. That happened. It was foreseen in April when Ezekiel Elliott was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. That's when we started talking about the possibility of an RB renaissance. Every guest that came on the Underworld Pod, Die Hard's Pod, Sonic Truth Pod, which we will be relaunching in 2017, we asked the question, are we in the midst of an RB renaissance? And the answer was yes. So many guests hedged on that question, never actually provided a straight answer forced me to come thundering in and say, okay, yes, we are in the midst of an RB renaissance, and what does that mean for our draft concepts? So we understood this over the summer, so as we turn the calendar to 2017 and we start planning our drafts, nothing changes. We implemented zero RB with our eyes wide open in 2016, and nothing happened this past season that would lead me to question the strategy. Because that's the question I receive most often. Contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email the show, rotounderworld at gmail.com. The most common questions start with the preposition, given that zero RB was a bust in 2016, what does that mean for zero RB in 2017? I can't answer that question because I disagree with the premise. So many of you have reached out and said, thank you, Podfather. Thank you, Roto Underworld. Thank you, Player Profiler. 
I won my league with Jordan Howard at RB1 and Jalen Richard in the RB2 slot. And our good friend Bilal Powell in flex, of course. Of course! I just received a text from a concierge customer letting me know that he benched Jameis Winston in favor of Colin Kaepernick because of the weekly concierge email that we send out. And we have opened up concierge registrations for 2017, so go to playerprofiler.com forward slash concierge and sign up for personal team advice. I help you with your draft strategy. I help you decide who to pick up and who to drop. I help you decide who to trade, when to trade. And I send you an email every week with recommendations on who to play and who to stay away from. I said stay away from Jameis Winston in week 16. Most fantasy analysts will see New Orleans on the schedule, and based on the matchup alone, recommend playing Jameis Winston. But New Orleans has not been a great matchup for fantasy quarterbacks been a mirage matchup. New Orleans has allowed the average amount of fantasy points per game to opposing quarterbacks, and their DVOA against the pass is not among the league's worst as it was last year. You were seeing Jameis Winston ranked in the top 10 last week based on a perception of the New Orleans Saints defense that was circa 2015 that was obsolete. We don't account for the matchup based on the brand of the defense, the reputation that's been built over the years. We analyze matchups based on how is that defense performing now? How productive are the players playing this defense this season and most importantly in recent weeks? And beyond the defense that the player is facing, the projected volume is as important as anything. And offenses facing the New Orleans Saints were not running as many plays as they were last year. And in particular, the pass attempts by Jameis Winston had been gradually declining in 2016. Jameis Winston strung together a series of games in which he did not throw more than 30 attempts. So when we looked out at Jameis Winston, all we saw were warning buoys bobbing up and down. So Jameis Winston was one of the stay away players we identified where we were more bearish on that player than the consensus by a significant margin. So part of what we do with our concierge messaging is identifying players for our clientele in which we are significantly more bullish than consensus or we're significantly more bearish than consensus. Those are the players in which we believe we can offer a strategic advantage to you on a week-to-week -week basis. And no halftime is the best place to take advantage of these arbitrage opportunities. Go to any player page on playerprofiler.com and click play player X on no halftime. Download the app. Enter the promo code player100 to get a 100% deposit bonus courtesy of Roto Underworld Radio. And you can set up individual player props. And this week, we're suggesting you play Deshaun Jackson, Cameron Meredith, Brandon LaFell, Adam Thielen, and Dontrell Inman against your friends on no halftime. Set up prop bets where you take Cameron Meredith against a player with more brand equity. Cameron Meredith versus Jarvis Landry. We're lower on Landry than consensus and higher on Meredith than consensus. Again, go to the App Store, download No Halftime, enter the promo code PLAYER100 and start taking advantage of the weekly arbitrage opportunities on a player-by-player -player basis. Winning money on No Halftime. That's one of the reasons why you sign up for Concierge. Now, we have a lot of people signing up right now because they want to lock it in they want to lock it in so that I can help them manage their Dynasty League teams this year. So go to playerprofiler.com forward slash concierge to get signed up now. 
And when I look at this concierge client list, I see a lot of champions. And one of the key to winning championships in 2017 will be to understand that 2015 wasn't merely an outlier season for running backs, because that's what I keep hearing. 2016 has been a return to normalcy for the running back position. 2015 was just an outlier. So many of you implemented zero RB based solely on 2015, and you're suckers for doing that. 2015 just happened to be a transition year for the running back position, but now we're back to normal with David Johnson scoring over 400 fantasy points in 15 weeks. Yes, that's a return to normalcy. Yeah, a normal season, like 2012 when Adrian Peterson was the top scoring running back, but he couldn't reach 350 total fantasy points. Right, 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 right. Now, 2015 was an outlier in that it was the worst year for fantasy running backs. That's true, but it wasn't an extreme outlier. That's what I'm hearing now, that 2015 was an extreme outlier. And it was the reason so many fantasy gamers were fooled by randomness and suckered into using zero RB, which was a losing strategy in 2016. All of that is wrong, but that's the perception. The perception is that there has been a radical shift at the running back position from 2015 to 2016, and you will see in 2017 a running back euphoria that no one will project and will be perfectly suited to capitalize on RB euphoria in 2017 with zero RB because Jordan Howard will be a first round pick next year. Jay Ajayi will be a first round pick next year. Watch. Those players will be selected before Des Bryant, before A.J. Green, before Julio Jones. I know you don't believe me now. Watch. It's going to happen. Because 2016 was just as much of an outlier as 2015 was. I know the perception is that 2016 was a watershed season for the running back position. The return of the ultra-stud running back, the league-winning RB. The heir to LaDainian Tomlinson has arrived and his name is David Johnson. That may be true. David Johnson may be the heir to LaDainian Tomlinson. That may be true. But that's also one player. One player who was drafted in the first round of 2016. That's the great outlier. The reason 2016 was an outlier is because the top running backs were the first round picks. You never see that. Look at the top running backs in 2015. Only Adrian Peterson was a first round pick. What about 2014? Who were the two backs in 2014? to exceed 350 fantasy points in PPR leagues. Le'Veon Bell and DeMarco Murray. Neither were first-round picks. What? No. Le'Veon Bell must have been a first-round pick in 2014. No, he wasn't. And neither was DeMarco Murray. DeMarco Murray's average draft slot on MyFantasyLeague.com in 2014, 18.7. Le'Veon Bell's average draft slot in 2014 on MyFantasyLeague.com, 27.59. Let's go back another year, 2013. Okay, sure, let's do it. Let's go to 2013. Jamal Charles, Matt Forte, LaShawn McCoy. Shockingly, only three running backs exceeded 300 total fantasy points in PPR leagues that year. Whoa, really? Yeah. But the top three running backs drafted that year were Adrian Peterson, Doug Martin, and Arian Foster. Not Jamal Charles, Matt Forte, and LaShawn McCoy. What, what's happening? Well, let's go back to 2012. Clearly... The top running backs drafted in 2012 must have performed well. The running back position can't be this difficult to predict. Oh, yeah? 
2012, yet another down year for the running back position. Only three running backs exceeding 300 fantasy points. Ooh. And that was a year in which Arian Foster played 16 games and reached the 300-point threshold by .8 points. Arian Foster posted 300.8 fantasy points that season. And Arian Foster was the only top running back that was drafted in the first round. Adrian Peterson was not drafted in the first round that year. He was coming back from an ACL tear. And Doug Martin was drafted at slot 45.12. Hmm. But thankfully, we experienced an RB renaissance, and running back production is way up in 2016, right? Well, at this moment, through 15 games, we only have three running backs that have exceeded 300 fantasy points. So, um, David Johnson, Ezekiel Elliott, and Le'Veon Bell were league winners this year. They crested 300 fantasy points. They're great players. You want them on your fantasy teams. But those players alone are not reason enough to abandon a strategy that worked in 2012, worked in 2013, worked in 2014, worked in 2015. Zero RB. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And I will reiterate, 2015 was the worst year for running backs. That was technically an outlier season, but so was 2016. 2016 was an outlier in that the first-round running backs were healthy all season, and most of them performed up to and beyond expectations, except Le'Veon Bell. All the early-round running backs have played 14 or more games, with the exception of Adrian Peterson. And Todd Gurley and Lamar Miller are the only first-round running backs that underperformed expectations. David Johnson was drafted in the first round, stayed healthy for 16 games, and crushed expectations. Ezekiel Elliott has been healthy all season and crushed expectations. Le'Veon Bell has been healthy when he's not suspended and crushed expectations. LaShawn McCoy missed one game, but in the games he played, crushed expectations. That is the outlier. You will not see three first-round running backs simultaneously stay healthy all season and crush expectations that season. We may not see that again in my lifetime because I've been going through the seasons back through time and I can't find an example where anything close to this happened with the first round running backs. Most of seasons past look more similar to 2015 than 2016 at the running back position. That's why zero RB is here to stay. And it was even successful in 2016. An extreme outlier season for first-round running backs. Zero RB was still successful, even in leagues that awarded a premium to running backs. The Scott Fish Bowl comes to mind. 0.25 points per carry, and only 0.5 points per reception. The Scott Fish Bowl scoring system is meant to prop up the value of running backs and tamper the value of wide receivers. That is the stated goal of Scott Fish in creating his scoring system. And most of the participants in the Scott Fishbowl Fantasy League are fantasy analysts. And how did my team do? I won my division of 12 teams. The Scott Fishbowl should really change its name to the Russian Doll Bowl because there are leagues within a larger league within an even larger league. So we have this layered league superstructure. You start with your 12-team league, and if you win that league, you go on to the conference championships, and if you win your conference championships, you go on to the league championship. 
I won my league. I went on to the conference championship, and I did not make it to week 16, the league championship. I fell just short. But a zero RB roster in 2016 did win a 12-person league comprised predominantly of experts using a scoring format that rewards running backs and punishes wide receivers. How was that possible? Well, let's look at the draft. With the third pick, I took Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown was the top-scoring wide receiver this year. That helped. With my second pick, I took Allen Robinson. And with my third pick, I took Brandon Cooks. The Allen Robinson pick was a catastrophic mistake because I should have drafted Des Bryant. If I drafted Des Bryant over Allen Robinson at the end of the second round... I would have been tantalizingly close to winning the entire championship with a zero RB roster in 2016. After Brandon Cooks, I drafted Julian Edelman, then Golden Tate. My first running back was Duke Johnson. My first quarterback was Tony Romo. Think about that. My only consistent starting quarterback all year was Joe Flacco. It's a super flex league, so it was Joe Flacco and some combination of Ryan Fitzpatrick. Oh. And Matt Barkley. Thank God for Matt Barkley. I drafted Charles Sims in that league. Whoops! But thankfully, in round 11, I was able to secure Tevin Coleman. And in round 12, LeGarrette Blunt. Tevin Coleman and LeGarrette Blunt propelled my team. After LeGarrette Blunt, I drafted Josh Doxson. This draft happened in July. I had no idea Josh Doxson wasn't going to play with an Achilles injury. I drafted Arian Foster. I drafted Austin Safarian Jenkins before his DUI. And in the 19th round, I drafted Spencer Ware. You need a productive running back core to succeed in the Scott Fish Bowl. And in Tevin Coleman, LeGarrette Blunt, and Spencer Ware, I secured a very productive running back core. Coleman, Ware, and Blunt all finished in the top 16 PPR running backs. Think about that for a second. Spencer Ware, LeGarrette Blunt, and Tevin Coleman were viewed as between-the-tackles runners heading into 2016. And the fact that they were being drafted in the double-digit rounds befuddled me all offseason. A lot of faith in Jamal Charles coming back from an ACL tear. A lot of faith in Deion Lewis coming back from an ACL tear. And as we've seen, even when Deion Lewis is awarded a generous opportunity share, all LeGarrette Blunt does is consistently score touchdowns and double-digit fantasy points. The most consistent RB2 in both standard and PPR leagues. LeGarrette Blunt, PPR star, yes. And on a per-game basis, Tevin Coleman outscored both LeGarrette Blunt and Spencer Ware because Tevin Coleman was the upside play. He was what we thought he was, a home run hitter every week he's active. Sometimes he gives you four points, sometimes he gives you 24 points. But the pick of the draft was Spencer Ware. And with Spencer Ware, we drafted him after inviting Scott Fish onto the show. We invited the league founder onto the show for his number one sleeper pick based on his format. And he said, Spencer Ware! We told the world to draft Spencer Ware. And he was still available to me at the end of the draft. And then during the season, Spencer Ware did the thing that no one saw coming. He demonstrated quality pass-catching skills, nice hands, fluidity in space. Spencer Ware has nice hands? Spencer Ware's fluid in space? That's what we saw this year from Spencer Ware. Over 30 receptions in a true bell cow role for a run-first offense. 
That's what we want, isn't it? A running back that's active in all phases for a run-first offense? Yes, please. Well, that's Spencer Ware. That's why we're buying Spencer Ware in Dynasty, because Spencer Ware looks the part of a big, all-purpose workhorse back who can win in all game situations. Spencer wears the all-terrain bell cow that we wanted Lamar Miller to be. That's what Spencer Ware is. And I'm not assuming the Chiefs are going to draft a running back in the early rounds in 2017. Charkandrick West and Spencer Ware signed multi-year contract last offseason. The Chiefs' running game is established. Spencer Ware is going to be the primary back in Kansas City for years to come. To this day, I remain stunned that Spencer Ware was available in the 19th round of the Scott Fish Bowl. This is in a league that puts a premium on running backs, where Mark Ingram was drafted before Allen Robinson and before Des Bryant. Even with owners incentivized to stockpile running backs, I was still able to secure Tevin Coleman in the 11th, like Garrett Blunt in the 12th, and Spencer Ware in the 18th round. And despite stepping on landmine after landmine from Tony Romo to Austin Safarian Jenkins, and despite facing David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell, and Ezekiel Elliott on a weekly basis, the team was a juggernaut regardless. I continue to insist that zero RB was a successful strategy in 2016, listing these running backs that we drafted. Melvin Gordon, Tevin Coleman, LeGarrette Blunt, Spencer Ware. And so many come back at me, well, yeah, sure, okay, if you draft those running backs. But most people didn't draft that running back core when they implemented zero RB. Yes, we did! Yes, we did! Those are the running backs we drafted! Because of course you have to draft the right players! Hello? Duh! Of course you have to draft the right players! For Christ's sake! Draft concepts and player-specific analysis go hand-in-glove, both important for building a successful fantasy team. My Scott Fishbowl team would not have been a success if I was focused on drafting running backs like Matt Jones! But we knew not to draft Matt Jones, and we knew not to draft Justin Forsett. We weren't drafting Matt Jones. We weren't drafting Justin Forsett. We weren't drafting Chris Ivory. And that's what we're going to continue to do in 2017, Implement a draft concept that sets you up to take advantage of positional volatility if you draft the right players. And that's what Zero RB offers. The safest, highest floor draft concept that also offers the most upside. This will set your team up in a way that the second coming of Ladanian Tomlinson is required to defeat you. I didn't make it because of David Johnson, but it took a 400-point running back to take me down. I am happy to set myself up to win, assuming Ladanian Tomlinson's not resurrected. I'll go to war with a zero RB roster, and I'll love my chances every time. I also love my chances of winning on Draft. You need to get the Draft app. Go to the App Store, type in Draft, download Draft, and make sure you enter the promo code UNDERWORLD for a deposit bonus up to $600. And invite your friends to join a four-person league, a six-person league. Draft leverages the Snake Draft format, not the salary cap format, and the payouts are more equitable than DraftKings and FanDuel. So you'll have more fun drafting, and you'll win more money. The Draft app is a win-win. And speaking of DraftKings... 
We're going to talk to DraftKings millionaire maker winner Drew Dinkmeyer on the show today. And we're going to ask him for his thoughts on the daily fantasy industry. All my leagues are concluded, so all the focus in Week 17 is on daily fantasy. DraftKings, FanDuel, and even better, Draft, as I mentioned. And if you don't feel like setting a whole lineup, go to no halftime. Now, let's go talk to Drew Dinkmeyer, one of the best DFS players in the world. Heading into Week 17, this is when we want to talk to Drew. And be sure to follow him on Twitter, at Drew Dinkmeyer. Welcome to Roto Underworld Radio, Drew Dinkmeyer from Daily Roto. This is the guy we need to talk to heading into Week 17. This is going to be one of my favorite shows, I can already tell. Drew Dinkmeyer, talk to me. I'm ready. Um, Let's do it, Matt. This is going to be a good show. I'm super psyched. It's Week 17, one last regular season week of NFL DFS slash preseason DFS because... Half the teams aren't playing for crap, so it's going to be fun. Uh, It's going to be random. It's going to be heart-wrenching. It's going to be frustrating, but it's going to be great. It's going to be great. So that's a good idea. So I have an idea. We probably are not going to talk about the Week 17 slate as much as many people think we will. They Oh, Drew Dinkmeyer is coming on a podcast. It's going to be a lot of daily fantasy talk. Who are the best value plays of the week? I can't wait to tune in and for Drew Dinkmeyer to give me this free advice. Uh... Uh, this person will probably be disappointed in the show so let's just get it out of the way now we don't have to talk about it again week 17 give us a couple value plays that you're playing in cash games because that's what people do on fantasy football podcasts yeah give me the plays give me the plays drew who are the locks who do i play the locks Give me the locks. I, I I am upset at the timing of this podcast. But I'm here in week 17 and one of the teams playing for something. It's Aaron Rodgers and the freaking Packers. Yep. I earlier this year went on a podcast and said Aaron Rodgers was dead. Ooh. And the same podcast, I touted a, uh, a, a lovely Brock Osweiler to DeAndre Hopkins stack. So this was one of my better appearances in the industry. So hopefully we can top that. <laughs> that sounds like a cold take. As cold as it's going to be, it's going to be cold in Green Bay this week. And that's a cold take that you are hearkening back to. Aaron Rodgers and the cold and the wind, potentially the snow. Can you trust him in such conditions, Drew Dinkmeyer? God, I hate I hate Aaron Rodgers. I hate he's a good play. Jordy Nelson's a good play. I, I hate it. I hate everything. Except David Johnson. I really like David Johnson. He makes me money every week. He's pretty awesome. They don't ca- They don't seem to care about pers- preserving David Johnson. They just throw him out there for 100% of snaps every single week. Doesn't matter if they're playing for, th- for next year or this year. So he's a great play this week. Yeah, working on the projections this week, I saw David Johnson at the top of the list, and I thought, oh, well, that's easy. Pencil him in for another 90% opportunity share. The Cardinals haven't had anything to play for for weeks. Nothing at stake for David Johnson. No problem. This is what he does. Three touchdowns in games with no stakes. Yeah, he's 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 amazing. So if you want uh, off the board plays other than like David Johnson, who's clearly very yeah, off David the board. Johnson doesn't count. You can't give us David yeah, Johnson. Yeah, I so didn't bring Drew you Dinkmeyer are, on the show to say play David Johnson. If you're really excited about 60 total yards and like nine catches. Yes. And maybe a touchdown. Rex Burkhead is dirt cheap. And I know you've got a little bit of an affinity for Rex Burkhead as well. Yes. 
I like Rex Burkhead because he's better than Jeremy Hill. It's not hard to be better than Jeremy Hill, but he's been winning roster spots every year because he's hashtag good at football. That's how you do it. If you're 27 years old, you have nice measurables, and you've been winning roster spots every year, all you need is an opportunity, some injuries ahead of you on the depth chart. Those are the guys that typically produce in Week 17. And that's where we're at. Jeremy Hill's likely out this week. Rex Burkhead is a guy that can catch passes. Yeah. He's, he's filled that role throughout his career. Why not? He's dirt cheap on a site like DraftKings that gives you the full PPR bonus. At uh, 3500 I think he's going to be a guy that I'm going to have a lot of exposure to this week. He needs to change his name to Flex Burkhead. Yes. 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 Is the double meaning there, right? He's flexing his muscles. He's a big, strong guy. And then there's a flex position on DraftKings. Oh, no. There it is. Flex Burkhead. Get him in your flex spot. Uh, and then just look for guys that are playing for something this week. You've got Seattle trying to lock up home field. Uh, so Thomas Rolls against the terrible 49ers defense is interesting. You've got Travis Kelsey and the Chiefs trying to lock up their division. And Kelsey, finally, they seem to have unleashed Kelsey. Finally. It only took it only took two years. <laughs> <laughs> but we're but we're finally here. Jeremy Mac Jeremy Macklin's just grazing around the field, and they're like, "Nah, we'll draw up gadget plays for Tyree Kill, and we'll actually throw the ball to Travis Kelsey now." So Kelsey's a great play once again at the tight end position. Yeah, it was unclear if Thomas Rawls was going to play in Week 17, but he had a full practice on Thursday, so green light on Thomas Rawls. I know he hasn't performed well the last couple weeks, but three weeks ago he had a two-touchdown game, and last year he posted numerous 100-yard performances, a few of them against good run defenses. So Thomas Rawls can be successful in that offense. If he didn't have Russell Wilson occupying linebackers, forget it. But as long as Russell Wilson's occupying linebackers, he's playing 49ers defense. I mean, this is it sets up perfectly for a Thomas Rawls re 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 resurrection resurrection he's not good though right I mean can we just say it he's not a great running back he's a situational player that's all he's going to be next year it's going to be the CJ Procise show you agree with that oh yes CJ Procise that dude can play yes that dude can really play. And so any running back that plays alongside Russell Wilson just gets the the, the boost, yes. right? The boost of playing alongside Russell Wilson. The boost that we've seen LaShawn McCoy get this year playing alongside Tyrod Taylor. As you mentioned, the linebackers, they have responsibility to the quarterback. And as a result, it frees them. It delays them from getting into holes. These patient running backs, they find the holes. They eat up yardage, big yardage chunks at a time. If you can't do that consistently with the benefits of Russell Wilson or a Tyrod Taylor, one of these running quarterbacks, that's not a good sign. And I think we've seen that. I was a, I was a longtime Christine Michael truther. Long time. <gasps> made, made this mistake before I found the wonderful site, playerprofiler.com, that taught me all about college production. I was a Christine Michael truther. And because it's been on brand, I'd like to stay in the Christine Michael truther uh, realm. I enjoyed it early this season. But very clearly, if you're not running for big yards per carry with Russell Wilson at your side, you're probably not going to do it in Green Bay. No. <laughs> with, with, with with that type of situation. So, yeah, I, I think Rawls is a fine play this week, but long-term, that's the C.J. Procise show. Seeing a running back with true long speed exploit holes to the maximum degree, taking a crease and turning it into a 70-yard touchdown, that just gave me shivers watching C.J. Procise. And I please, C.J., just come back healthy. Just all the best. I think 
The theme for this week is, in cash games, play players with stakes. But in GPPs, you can play players without stakes. You can potentially play someone like Jeff Janis, right? <sighs> I, will, I, want, I want Jeff Janis to be in a GPP. I mean, it's it's a it's a end of season good feeling. But we could have a situation where if Randall Cobb doesn't play, then Jeff Janis is someone you could potentially use in a GPP, right? I mean, it's possible. It's not crazy. It might be crazy. He played he played uh, I think eleven percent of snaps last week. It might be crazy. Oh God, I know that was <laughs> so annoying. God, I hate everything about this Jeff Janis situation because it's clear to me that Aaron Rodgers and Jeff Janis don't get along, and it's not Jeff's fault. Do you think Jeff Janis wakes up in the morning and wants to get along with Aaron Rodgers, wants Aaron Rodgers to like him? Of course he does, but he's also a hick. His wife was pregnant, (laughs) and Jeff found out before his wife the sex of the baby, and he took his wife out to a shooting range, and the target was infused with a smoke. And it was one of two colors, pink or blue. And if he shot the target and blue smoke went up in the air, it was a boy. And if pink smoke went up, it was a girl. He shot the target, blue smoke went up, and he jumped up with his gun and was hugging his wife. He was hugging his (laughs) pregnant wife with a gun in his hand. That's country right there. Jeff Janis is a country boy. That's how babies are born in the country with guns around. That's not Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers is a pseudo-intellectual. He went to Berkeley. He doesn't want anything to do with guns. The last place Aaron Rodgers wants to be is in a duck blind. That is a living hell for Aaron Rodgers. So when he sees Jeff Janis ambling on the practice field, he wants nothing to do with this guy. Why? Because Aaron Rodgers is a snob. If Jeff Janis were on a team with a down-to-earth quarterback who appreciated the rural lifestyle and mind-blowing size-adjusted athleticism, (laughs) then Jeff Janis would already have ascended. He would already be this fantasy asset that we can rely on for big plays every week. He would be a GPP play every week, but somehow on the Packers with the best quarterback in the world, maybe ever, we can't play him even in a GPP. And it makes me crazy. It's just, I just can't stand it. It makes me so mad. Randall Cobb's not even going to play. They converted Ty Montgomery to running back and they, we still can't play Janice in GPPs. What the fuck, Drew? God damn it. So annoying. Go ahead. If only there was a Green Bay quarterback that was a country boy who liked to throw the ball down the field. If only that ever happened in a different decade. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Imagine that. Imagine that. Jeff Janice is from the wrong time frame. He needs to go back. Jeff Janice needs a time machine. <laughs> Jeff Janice with Brett Favre? <laughs> They would be best friends. Holy shit. It just, Farf would just launch it to Janice every play. <laughs> and they would have some special high five that they taught each other wrangling a buffalo. Oh, my God. That's, you just blew my mind, man. You just, wow. Just, I need to collect myself. I need to. Whew. Okay. Where were we? 
GPP plays. <laughs> so guys, guys that I like in GPPs that don't really have much to play for. I mean, technically, Tampa Bay has like a point zero one 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 percent chance. They need like seven ties, two out of division wins. And and all this stuff to happen. But Mike Evans is going to get lost because people are going to play Jordy Nelson. They're going to play the guys that are that are in high stakes. Mike Evans is going to get lost in this whole shuffle. No Cameron Brait. Who that who the hell are they throwing to? They're just going to throw to Mike Evans a lot. So I think Mike Evans is a good GPP play. Brandon Cooks is pretty much the epitome of a GPP play every single week. Yes. I don't know if you know this, Drew Digmeyer. Brandon Cooks initials are GPP. (laughs) That's how you spell it. Yeah. Look, I saw it on Wikipedia. So, yeah, I so, think- so let's just summarize this. Play Flex Burkhead in every contest type. Play players with stakes in cash games and play your high ceiling playmakers who are playing without stakes in GPPs. That way you'll get off the Jordy Nelsons that'll have a high ownership. There it is. Yeah, very simple. That's the strategy for week 17. Now we can go on and talk about literally anything else except daily fantasy. Thank God. We've had some analysis in 2016. Some of it was good. Some of it was bad. I think overall fantasy analysis is improving. It's a slow evolution and it's uneven, but I think it's improving. But every year we see a lot of bad analysis and that's not going to go away. What bad analysis that you read this year made you want to fight that person at a Buffalo Wild Wings? Pretty much anything at this point that talks about quarterbacks in a way that they're not completely replaceable in fantasy drives me absolutely insane. That's pretty much anything around those levels drives me totally bonkers. That and then anybody else trying to discuss a strategy like a zero running back or anything like that in the context of only mattering with the players you select. Those two things drive me insane because they show no perspective towards towards the ingredients around you, towards the different things that could potentially happen. Like, yes, if you just predict the future accurately, that's the best path. Of course, you can't just do that. You got to stack odds and probabilities in your favor. And so any analysis that focuses on basically, well, this one player, this was the guy to get. Yeah, the strategy this year, obviously, Drew, was to draft David Johnson and then a bunch of receivers. And then Aaron Rodgers in round seven and then Travis Kelsey in round eight. Like That was the strategy. Duh. Of course. Hello. How did you not know that? I mean, you need to draft good players, Drew. I don't like to use a strategy, quote-unquote. I just like good players. I never even know who the good players are. I find out midway through the season. <laughs> Sometimes I think guys are good. That's right. And then they're not. That's right. That's, that's right. That's why we have draft concepts. <laughs> to win on the margins. Because that's where we win. That's where everybody wins. That's where Condia wins. On the margins. And that's all we're trying to do is to tilt in a good way. Tilt in a good way. Yes. Tilt the odds slightly, and then maybe you'll end up winning more than you lose. And that's fun. We just want to win more than we lose. And then once in a while, you hit a home run. It's fine. That's fine. That's success in fantasy football, not constructing the perfect roster with hindsight bias. That's what we got. But I'm sure you had a cold take this year. Share it with us. Your coldest take of 2016. What was the coldest take you had? I referred to this earlier. It's one of the many reasons 
Anytime I think Aaron Rodgers is dead, I'm a Bears fan. My family grew up in Chicago. I've had many moments in my Bears fandom that I thought Aaron Rodgers was dead. There was a fourth down play a few years ago for the division. I thought Aaron Rodgers was dead. This year, he had like six games in a row, sub six and a half yards per attempt. I thought he was dead again. Every time, every fucking time, Aaron Rodgers, I think he's dead. He's not. And he makes me he makes me look like such a fool every time. Like he he just he he just resurrects himself in the exact moment that I have felt a little bit secure in my Bears fandom or my fantasy analysis. And then he resurrects himself and just kills me. And so earlier this season on a podcast, I gave the take that Aaron Rodgers was washed, that he was Joe Flacco. (laughs) Four of Aaron Rodgers first six games Less than 6.0 yards per attempt. I mean, that happened this season. Oh, God. And then Jordy was fine. Jordy was all of a sudden fine, and the whole offense was fine. Yeah, and then as of week 10, when he posted 371 yards against Tennessee, his yards per attempt never fell below (laughs) 7. He's so good. He's so good. Just go away. And he does it with style, too. The fluidity in the pocket. Yeah. The throwing motion. Yeah. The perfect spiral. Mm. The way that he can generate velocity elegantly. That kills me knowing he's a douche. God. Just kills me. I have this <laughs> throbbing Jeff Janis bias that infects all my analysis of Aaron Rodgers, but... <laughs> I'll admit, he's one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and the championships are what will hold him back from being viewed as Tom Brady level 10 years from now. Yeah. that it. So my, my coldest take was Aaron Rodgers. Thought he was washed. What about your best take, though? What was your hottest take? It didn't take very long for me to figure out that Dak was going to be in a really good spot from a fantasy perspective this season. I thought back to basically it took me one preseason game and then seeing one Mississippi State college football game this season when they lost their opener to like some D3 school. And I realized, you know, I don't think any other top tier talent played on Mississippi State and they were like a borderline national title contender. And Dak's the only guy that's really in the pros. Maybe he's really good. Yeah. And then you think they've got Ezekiel Elliott. They've got Jason Witten. They've got Des Bryant. They've got this ungodly good offensive line. Mm. So pretty much as soon as Romo was ruled out, I started scooping up Dak as like my primary late round quarterback. And it was it was easy pickings. You were getting him. You know, he was free. Nobody was drafting him. I traded for him in Dynasty. Yeah, it it was gold for like MFLs and stuff. I have I had like. 30-40% 30-40% Dak with like an average cost of around 16. Dak Prescott, when you watched him at Mississippi State, he looked like a man on the football field. That's one of those things where I don't watch a lot of college football, but when I do, it's disorienting to watch certain players because it looks like they're playing a different level of football, like a high schooler playing with little giants. That's what it looked like Dak Prescott playing with and playing against college football players he looked like a professional quarterback to this day I still cannot believe that he fell to the fifth round that was a catastrophic failure 
by the NFL's scouting industrial complex. Totally insane. And so as soon as he went down, I, I thought that guy's going to be a really good fantasy asset. And I thought he had the chance to be a really good real life asset. I think he's exceeded my own expectations because he's been tremendous this year just with decision making. Like the 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 deck is stacked in his favor, right? Like he's got everything you could possibly have. He's playing from favorable game scripts almost all year long. He's got the best offensive line in football. He's got one of the best running backs in football. He's got one of the best receivers in football, but he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't F with it. He just is like, all right, fine. I will take all the six yards at a time if I need to. I'm just not going to make any mistakes because I don't need to. And he does. He plays his role perfectly and it, it works for the team. It works from a fantasy perspective. So I've become a big Dak Prescott believer just because when you have all those tools to understand, to harness them, I think is really mature for a young player. And so he's he's really impressed me this year. We haven't seen a quarterback play this responsibly since 2004 Ben Roethlisberger. Mm -hmm. I've also been wrong. This past season, I said that Jordan Howard was in no way a threat to Jeremy Langford. (laughs) Don't worry about it, Jeremy Langford enthusiast. We got this. (laughs) Fuck Jordan Howard. He's He's not an issue. He's overrated. He's just a fifth round pick. Nothing to worry about. (laughs) But I balanced it out with the hottest take of them all. That Cameron Meredith was the highest upside player that nobody knows. I said that in August, Drew. Yeah. Woo. That's hot. (laughs) (laughs) That's very hot. I still cannot get over the Bears drafting Kevin White. What what were they doing drafting Kevin White? Oh, dagger! What are they doing? He's like he's he's 34. He's like 34 years old already in his rookie year. My boy Marquise can't get a shot. Oh, <sighs> he follows you on Twitter, doesn't he? He does. He does. That's nice. I'm very appreciative of everything Marquise has brought to my life. Oh, wow. That's cool that he followed you on Twitter. Like He knows that he did something really cool for someone. I just want him to get a shot. He, and he finally got a shot and he got hurt again. He just hasn't been able to stay healthy because I think he's good. I think he's, he's too thin. I, right. Yeah. His fr- That's probably the problem, right? His frame is yeah. just not going to hold yeah. up. He's one of the lowest BMI wide receivers in the NFL. That's ultimately what may hold back Tajay Sharp. We're hoping that Tajay Sharp can gain 10 pounds. That would really help him. If he doesn't, we just don't have successful archetypes in that 6'3", 190 body type. They don't exist. The skinniest guy that's a wide receiver one is someone like A.J. Green, but he's 6'3", 205, 210. So it's a big drop down to the the weight class that someone like Tajay Sharp resides. Whereas Cameron Meredith, he's 200 pounds plus. So Cameron Meredith, it's official. He's the real deal, everybody. Buy high in Dynasty Leagues on Cameron Meredith. He's he's got a good chance to be the wide receiver one next year there because I don't think they're bringing back Alshon. 
they, their their management just has seemed very frustrated with Alshon. They don't seem to have understood or appreciated what they've had with him throughout the course of his tenure with the Chicago Bears. And I thought he's been one of the better draft picks that they've had in the last five or six years. And they just don't seem to appreciate him. Well, if you don't count Jordan Howard, yeah. he's been the best offensive skill position player they've drafted in the last 10 years, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Since Greg Olson. Which who they also did not appreciate at any point during his tenure and shipped him off because, hey, you can't have a tight end in the Mike Martz offense, right? Because we got to we got to shape the whole roster to the coach because the coach we know we know the coach is going to be here a while, right? Because that's how the NFL works. So we just change the whole roster, get rid of the best players, get the fit because you got to find the fit for the coach because the coach is what matters. Because the coach has a lot of security. Fantasy writers can't help but label the offense based on the offensive coordinator or the head coach if he has an offensive coordinator background. So with the Bears, it was always the Mike Martz offense that we predict Jay Cutler will exceed expectations, quote, in the Mike Martz offense, end quote. And that device has haunted fantasy football analysis for decades and I thought that the Mark Tressman offense <laughs> was the death rattle of this crutch argument. But no, no, we're going to see it again. It's going to be the Adam Gase offense in Miami next year. You wait. You know what's going to happen. You don't even argue. I, we know what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen because it's already happening. Here's the thing. If you've got an offense... That is, if you have an archetype in your head of this offense means these position players do well, that's probably a bad coordinator. That's probably a guy who's not going to be around a long time because you should be adapting your offense to the players you have at your disposal. You shouldn't be trying to pigeonhole players into an offensive concept. Fantasy analysts assume most teams run their front office in that way, like the Bears did under Martz. That's an outlier. Most teams are just trying to acquire good players that can make plays on the football field, and they'll let the quarterback decide who's open and who he's going to throw to. So when Kobe Fleener signs with the Saints, you shouldn't be picking him up because, quote, Drew Brees likes the tight end. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, so the bear, the Bears are just frustrated me to no end. And Alshon is probably they're probably going to just let him walk. I think at this point we have five to ten different types of analysis that inspire us to fight someone at a Buffalo Wild Wings. Come and see me. I am at Buffalo Wild Wings. I love Levitard. I learned about that rant through Levitard. You probably knew yeah, that. Yeah. There is a Levitardian influence in this yes. show, and anyone that listens to both shows <laughs> picks up on it right away. Yes. They get the show. They get the show. And like Levitard, I can't interview someone without having at least one serious question. And you are a well-known figure in the DFS industry. And last year was a daily fantasy debacle of epic proportions as the industry, the industry collapsed as every state shut the game down. It was interesting to watch as a third-party observer, someone that doesn't have a major stake in the daily fantasy industry. So what was one interesting takeaway that Drew Dinkmeyer gleaned from that 2015 DFS debacle? I think I learned a lot about media coverage of things in general, in that a lot of times the media motivations for the coverage are not necessarily to get the facts, but to get the best headline. And so we saw that on numerous occasions with things that sort of spiraled out of control and then never really came back to them. It was just like, ah, uh, yeah, there was insider trading in DFS. 
And that's the way it went down. We're going to write a bunch of articles on it. And then when, you know, it comes out later, there's not like a a redaction where there's not an article that's like, oh, no, they actually had an independent investigation and none of that stuff happened. So here's here's where we're at on DFS. There's actual legitimate issues, but this one we kind of missed the ball on. We kind of made that one up. Um, So I learned a lot about that. And that was a really frustrating experience just from somebody who you know, was trying to get out there, was trying to do interviews and different things to represent the industry in a respectful manner, to try to put a little credibility behind the industry, to just never feel comfortable that the coverage was going to be fair or, or people were going to be looking for the facts as opposed to the story. You're being set up. They're only looking for the salacious pull quote. And you sensed that. Yeah. And so I, I just stopped doing a lot of interviews and I stopped doing a lot of, and I had done a ton before And so that was the biggest takeaway for me personally, just learning a little bit about that. And then also learning the balances between where legislation can come in and make a difference that's potentially a positive impact to the to the culture and the industry and the environment. And then things that they do because they have no concept of what the actual industry and environment is that are just laughable, like these experience badges that have done the exact opposite thing of what they're trying to accomplish, which is a new player comes onto the site and they'll see this badge and they'll know that's an experienced player. So you don't want to play him. Instead, the new player comes onto the site and sees these little symbols and they're like, I don't know what the hell that is. That's probably an avatar or something. Meanwhile, all the experienced people are like, that guy's not got a badge. Get him. And it's done the exact opposite. So basically, a new player now is walking around with a target because they don't have the badge that everybody else has. And legislators somehow thought this was a good idea. (laughs) They're walking around like a Jeff Janis target (laughs) loaded with blue smoke. My takeaway is that the entire industry learned about crisis management on the fly. And looking back with hindsight bias, we can see they made some mistakes. And I believe the industry was misguided on one particular point, and they never course corrected throughout the whole process of crisis management. And that was the initial point that was being made by those representing the industry, the DFS industry, was DFS is not gambling. DFS is not gambling. DFS is not gambling. This, to me, was stunning because I was sitting here going, that should not be your primary argument. When we set lineups, we are wagering on the outcome of an uncertain future event. The literal definition of gambling. You can't, with a straight face, say that DFS isn't gambling. So you can make literally any other argument except that. And it would be more compelling. The problem with that is like the legal definition versus the generic definition. And they're trying to draw that battle. And basically, you can't have a broad based argument on semantics. Yes, exactly. Like that can't be your you, that can't be your motto. Your motto can't be semantics. And that's the thing that it sucks that that was that one that they felt like that had to be their starting point because they felt like they had to draw this distinction. But yes, they definitely carried that out far too long. Something else that's been carried out far too long. It's been going on for decades. The mantra that in the fantasy playoffs, you should be starting your studs. What do you think of that one, Drew Dinkmeyer? Oh my God. I, so, uh, <sighs> so I get asked all the time, all the time, 
People come into my mentions on Twitter and they say something generic like, what does it take to be a winning professional daily fantasy player? As if I could... Shut up. People ask you that. I could respond in 140 characters and give them the key to success. Someone sent you that tweet, seriously? And it wasn't a bot? It wasn't just a bot? It was a real person who was reaching out to you to teach them through Twitter how to be a professional in this particular industry? It could have been a bot. I hope it was a bot. But it happens far too frequently. I hope to God it was a bot. And what people want is some sort of rule of thumb. And I hate rules of thumb. Because... If you just rely on rules of thumb, you're 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 basically saying I have no ability to analyze nuance. I have no understanding of nuance or intricacies. So just give me the most basic recipe to succeed. And guess what? You're never going to reach the highest levels of success with simple rules of thumb. You're not going to because they're simple. In most cases, to reach the highest levels of success, you need to have complex understanding of problem solving and management. And so the idea that a rule of thumb of start your studs. <laughs> who the hell are the studs? Are they the guy I drafted in the first round? Are the guy who scored two touchdowns the, the previous week? Is it the guy who I think has the highest projection? Who are the studs? I don't know. Who's the stud? Cameron Meredith or Allen Robinson? Exactly. I mean, I drafted Lamar Miller in the first round of a league this year. Is he my stud now? Probably not. So who the hell are the studs? And I think it's, <laughs> I think it's one. It's obviously lazy analysis, right? Um, oh, the laziest. I asked you this question because I abhor that analysis. Because it's it's not it's not even giving you an answer that's helpful. Because it's telling you you figure out who the studs are and start them. Which I'm fine with, by the way. I'm fine with telling the fantasy enthusiast, run your own goddamn fantasy team. I'm fine with that. But just say that. Just be honest. And that's the problem. It's it's basically, it's just a rhetorical fantasy answer. It's like, it's like oh, start your studs. Yes, of course. Start the studs. Who are the studs? Well, you should know who the studs are. It's like it's like Kramer when on Seinfeld, when he did the movie phone bit, and he was the movie phone when you'd call him. They'd ask for the time of the movie. He'd say, why don't you tell me the name of the movie (laughs) you wish to see? That's the fantasy response to start your studs. Oh, the rhetorical tricks that fantasy analysts use on a daily basis on Twitter. I could write a whole article just using blurbs on Twitter with the generic rhetorical tricks that the fantasy analysts use. And I talk to fantasy analysts on this show every week, and most of them refrain from rhetorical tricks and my interviews are very rarely contentious but there was some contention on my recent interview with christopher harris got a little contentious but the audience experienced it as super polarizing some members of the audience loved it some members of the audience wanted to find christopher harris and take a baseball back to his car I said, whoa, whoa, what happened? I thought it was a perfectly fine interview. The same thing with Aaron Coscarelli. Some people hated it. Some people loved it. But that one was easier for me to understand. And the savvy listeners were honest with me. that Hey, that interview sucked. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> I agree. But not the Christopher Harris interview. I thought the Christopher Harris interview went well. What do you think? If you listen to the show, you probably don't. But if you happen to listen to the show and you heard that Christopher Harris interview, did you think it was good or bad? I did. 
listened to the show, and I sent you a note that I thought it was good. I thought it was a good interview, and I think... You can't say that, Drew. Why? You can't say that. We're on air. Oh. You're not supposed to say that... Right, right. ...that we talked about it offline. Right, I right. That destroys the credibility of the question. Right, right. I, I don't know who you are. I've never heard this show before. I'm just... No, no, no. You're just supposed to say... <laughs> you're not supposed to let the audience know... That we've game planned out all these questions and that I'm asking this question specifically because you told me a week ago it was a great interview. They can't know that. We can let them know a little bit of what's going on behind the scenes, a peek behind the curtain, but we can't give them the entire show sheet, Drew. So you should say something like, oh, I do listen to the show. I love the show. And yes, I heard that Christopher Harris interview. And then, you know, give your thoughts on, on how it went. Mostly that it was great and that I'm great. All right. 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 I did listen to the show. I do love the show. And I enjoyed the Chris Harris interview. And I think it's one of those situations where styles make fights. And these are two different styles to fantasy football analysis. And I'm sure I can understand why some of your listeners, some of your loyalist listeners, may not have appreciated the type of analysis that Chris Harris provides. Oh, they hated him. Because that's not their analysis, right? That's not their thing. And we're in a tribalistic society now, so you got to be on a team, right? So you're team Matt Kelly. And he's team Chris Harris. And F him, I don't like anything that he says. And this is uninteresting. And bring me someone else from team Matt Kelly. Because I, I only want to hear opinions that are like mine, right? That's all I want to hear. So I can understand how that would upset people. I try to live in a world of a little bit of nuance. Imagine that. Maybe there's something I can learn from somebody who does something that I don't do or that I don't ascribe to. Maybe there's a little thing that I could pick up from it. So I enjoyed the interview from that perspective because it's not something, you know, me personally, I don't go out and seek Chris Harris's podcast. It's not one of the things that I go out there and seek and try to listen to. But it was good to hear it on a podcast that I'm familiar with to get that perspective and in introduce introduce that perspective to me so that if I was interested in learning more about that style of analysis I now have a path and so I appreciate that type of analysis you love basketball I follow you on Twitter you're you're a great Twitter follow at Drew Dinkmeyer and it's clear from following you on Twitter you love basketball you love NBA DFS in particular so what makes NBA DFS so compelling so I, I love NBA DFS for a few reasons. The first is from a from a math and a projection standpoint, it reduces a lot of the variance simply through iterative possessions. You have so many opportunities where you, the players you're investing in are touching the ball on a nightly basis. And as a result, it just makes it much easier to project. And for me, it, it's been, been my most profitable DFS sport because it sues out a lot of the variance um, when you're projecting it. And then I just enjoy the sport more than all the other sports. For me, football, I love the game football and I love like the, the chess match between opposing offense and defense in football. I think that's very interesting. But the sport leaves me very conflicted because one, it's borderline human rights violations, the entire sport. And in the league totally condones all of this. They don't treat their players like human beings. They treat them like assets. And I'm afraid that at some point I'm just going to watch someone die on the field. And it's not my thing. I'm not really into it. It's like I'm not I'm not in I'm not into the gladiator aspects of football. And so basketball to me is a much more fluid game. It also doesn't have the stop and start of the huddles and different things like that. So the game just kind of flows. 
the athletes are operating in a lot more space consistently. There's only five players sharing the, the court at a time as opposed to 11. And it's just, it's a cleaner game for me to watch and enjoy. And I, I think because of things that the league has done with guaranteed contracts and different things like that, we've had most of the best athletes in the United States. That's right. Funnel up towards basketball now to football and so the product to me is much better in basketball now than it is in football and i think historically that has gone back and forth at different periods of time but currently not only because of the guaranteed contracts and different things but because the nba reached out to europe and asia and started recruiting and 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 setting their roots in years ago decades ago with david stern that it's become more of a global sport that is bringing globally the best athletes in the world to all play in the NBA, whereas the NFL has lost some players from the U.S. because of the concussions, because of the risk injury risk, because of the non-guaranteed contracts, because of the short lifespans in the NFL. And I think some of those best athletes have gone over to the NBA. That's right. The talent pool is so much deeper for the NBA. It's literally the entire planet is a talent pool for the NBA where with football, it's really North America and specifically the United States and the island of Samoa. And even in the United States, at the high school level, at the college level, the best athletes want to be professional basketball players. Like you said, they don't aspire to be professional football players. So what does that mean? That means when you watch an NBA game, you're watching five players play against five players who are better athletes than most of the players that are playing on an NFL field 11 on 11. So the NBA plays more games because their sport isn't as violent. Do the math. In any given NBA season, you get many more feats of athletic brilliance than you do in an NFL season. Even on a per-minute basis, a per-minute of action, you're more likely to see a spectacular play that makes you stand up in your chair or makes a shiver run down your spine watching basketball than watching football. It's also easier to watch. You've got five players on the on the court at a time versus 11. So your your attention is focused towards the players who are doing the incredible things where on a football field you're following the camera essentially because you can't follow all the players at the same time. Like the guys, you know, the the former NFL head coaches and stuff like Rude and those guys, they can do that. I cannot do that as as a fan just kind of watching and seeing the whole play develop. So I just follow the camera. And so you don't always get to see the incredible athleticism on display because your eyes are focused on one subset of what's happening on the field as opposed to an NBA game where you can see everything that's happening because there's only 10 people sharing the entire court at the time. So I I am, am more familiar with the NBA game. I appreciate the athleticism of the NBA game, and it happens to coincide well with DFS and predictive analytics and projections and different things like that that I spend my time on. The NBA has the benefit of large sample sizes. In the NFL, we are never afforded the benefit of a large sample size. We still don't know how good Allen Robinson is, and it will be years and years before we ever can come to any kind of conclusion with definitive certainty whereas most of the NBA players you know if they're good or not and the beauty of the NBA is the good players play a lot of the minutes and they play on both sides of the court so when you watch the Thunder Russell Westbrook's always involved he's constantly involved and as a player it looks like he's in a constant state of perpetual motion anyway and then the format of the sport 
allows him to always be part of the action, that's the beauty of the NBA, and that's the advantage that it has aesthetically on the NFL. And one more advantage I'd give you is attrition. Just in general, the attrition with the NFL, year after year, you are losing some of the most talented players, not just for that that year. What? Right? But these, these injuries that the players are suffering are career-altering. No, Drew, I disagree. Calvin Johnson wasn't that good. <laughs> So these guys have these injuries, and then they're never necessarily the same again. And yes, that happens sometimes in the NBA. It happened with Derrick Rose, who you know had multiple knee injuries, and then he was just a totally different player after that. But it happens much more frequently in the NFL. So by the end of the season with the NFL, sometimes it just feels like who's left standing as opposed to who are the best teams or the best players or... It just it feels like who who's left? Who who am I who am I watching? I haven't seen this guy all season. It's because it's the fourth string running back because they're having to sign somebody off the street because guys are getting hurt so frequently. And so the attrition of the game makes it challenging to keep the product at a really high level when the when the requirement in terms of the number of players to play the game is already so high. It would be really helpful for us as fantasy gamers to have a video game meter on these players so we could see how healthy they are at what level to which they can perform based on their health. But the idea that that is what we need to understand the game, to predict what's going to happen, shows how dehumanizing the sport is compared to other sports. And when I think about humanizing athletes, I think about Greg Popovich. Because Greg Popovich had a great quote recently. He was asked, if anything is more important to him than winning a championship. He said, win a championship? I don't know. I guess that's a priority, but it's not a high priority. I'd be much happier if I knew that my players were going to make society better, who had good families, who took care of the people around them. I get more satisfaction out of that than a title. I would love to win another championship and would work our butts off to try to do that. But we have to want more than success in our jobs. That's why we're here. We're here so you'll understand that you can overcome obstacles by being prepared. And if you educate the hell out of yourself, if you become respectful, disciplined, you can fight and accomplish anything. If you join with each other and you believe in yourself and each other, that's what matters. That's what we want to relay that we believe that about you or we wouldn't be here. So there, Greg Popovich articulated the value that team sports can bring to society. And it was noteworthy to me because I've never heard anything like this from a football coach. So is there anything that NFL coaches can learn from Greg Popovich? I think they could first start with your players are human beings. They're complex human beings. They're not just football players. What the hell is that, right? You're just you're just a group, and and because you're you're a football player, you're tough, and you have all these things that you have to live up to, and you should come back from injuries, and you should play play through and show your toughness because you're a football player. Do it for your teammates. Yeah, they would want you to destroy your career for them. They talk about their players in generic terms. They don't talk about their players as unique individuals, right? And that's probably partially the challenge of coaching 60 players versus coaching 10 players. Very hard to make a difference on each person individually when there's that many people. When you hear a lot of times when you hear a 
former NFL players talk about very specific relationships they have with a coach. It's usually a position coach. And that's because they're working with a handful of players. They can make an impact on those players' lives. But you don't see this often in the NFL. The head coaches especially talk very generically about the concept of what a football player is, and it shows no individualism amongst any of the players. And I think the one team that's tried to do this is Seattle. They've tried to implement programs that are geared specifically towards the development of each player, as opposed to the development of football player X, and football player X needs to become this. Instead, it will be Jermaine Curse needs to become this. And I think just treating these, these players as individuals and as people would be a really big step in helping develop and coach them because as, as Greg Popovich alluded to, there's, there's all these morals and all these stories that we teach our children about playing sports and the benefits of playing sports. And for some reason they don't exist at the professional level. Like nobody cares about them at the professional level because this is your end. Your end is whatever you accomplish in this arena. That's if you don't win a championship, you are not a success. It's so dumb. And so I, I think must win championship. I think just a, how many rings? A general understanding. How many rings? A general. How many rings? A general understanding. How many rings? That these people are individuals would really go a long way for coaches. Wins. W-Y-N-Z. That's why David Johnson's not going to win the MVP. <laughs> Doesn't have enough wins on that resume in 2016. When I look at the dichotomy between successful NBA coaches and successful NFL coaches. In the NBA coaches, I see individuals that are further along on the evolutionary track that are more sophisticated and more thoughtful and have a perspective about them. If it's not Greg Popovich, and if it's some other coach, it's probably a basketball coach that's going to give you a quote like I read from Greg Popovich, not a football coach. Because in the NFL, it's still rife with the overworked disciplinarian archetype. And that archetype doesn't exist in basketball like it used to. But it's still the norm in the NFL. You have these coaches preaching toughness while they themselves act like cowards on Sunday punting on fourth and one. <laughs> and that is just another one of those maddening hypocrisies that I experience watching the NFL. And, and I lament with those with similar sensibilities like yourself, because just asking players to be tough just for toughness sake or for their teammates, that's not real leadership. What Greg Popovich said, that was what leadership looks like, where you can risk unpopularity in the media to stand up for something that you believe in is in the best interests of your players. And I'm waiting to see that at some point in the NFL. I have never seen it, and I will come on the show and I will talk about it the moment it happens at the NFL level. It's incredible. We're seeing it in all sports but the NFL. We just saw it in my, my favorite team in baseball, the Chicago Cubs. We just saw Joe Madden preach throughout the course of the year with his leadership and management style. Be yourself. Be an individual. If it looks hot, if you look hot, wear it. Be who you are. And football continues to go down this path of don't be an individual. Just just be be a football player and be tough and recover from injuries and play through injuries. And then when you're done, next man up, right? You're totally replaceable. What is this teaching people? That's a 1960s philosophy. It's fascinating to me how the NFL coaching system, the system that's producing these individuals, how it hasn't changed in 50 years. 
And I don't see a path to it changing. I don't see an evolutionary track. It's dumbfounding. And it also leads to a problem that you talked about earlier, which is players overused, asked to play hurt. And not only does that sap their athleticism, it cuts their careers short. It negatively impacts their future earnings. And you see that more in football than you do in other sports. For a long time, I thought the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Miami Heat were mismanaging LeBron James. I thought both coaching staffs were doing LeBron James a disservice that they weren't respecting his body. They were asking him to play too many minutes, and he was not given enough time to recover. And the result is that LeBron James has now played more minutes than Larry Bird and Magic Johnson did in their entire career, and he's still posting some of the most impressive stat lines of his career, now well into his 30s, with more miles on his odometer than any NBA player has ever logged at his age, and somehow, some way, we're seeing almost no degradation in his skill set. What LeBron James is today, after playing that many minutes of NBA basketball, not even counting Olympics basketball, that many minutes of NBA basketball, that is one of the truly astonishing achievements that I have witnessed, right? Witnessed. (laughs) In my lifetime consuming sports, the LeBron James career arc and the player he is today based on his usage over the past 15 years. It's insane. It's It's everything, everything that he's done in his career, considering the expectations that came with his career (sighs) when he was, when he was a child, essentially, he's a prodigy. Everything that he's done is, is mouth dropping. And to me, this is the thing that is the most incredible of all the things. The fact that his body can withstand this, this intolerate this level of performance in this the, the lack of recovery necessary i mean this guy is playing two more months or of basketball than everybody else in the league every year and he's playing the most minutes of anybody during those two extra months that he's playing and he continues to come back and the only answer i have is that he remember when he was on the heat and he would be playing 40 minutes while Dwayne wade was sitting out yes yes That happened for years in Miami, and I thought the Heat were being irresponsible with their handling of his usage, and there's no evidence of that. Do you remember remember when in the NBA Finals, he cramped in a game where there was no air conditioning in the arena? And And the people, the people are always soft. He's cramping. Are you kidding me? I want to fight those people at a Buffalo Wild Wings! He's the only the only the only answer I have is he's Luke Cage. He is Luke Cage incarnate in real life. Luke Cage is walking around playing basketball. That's what we have. It is. It's the closest thing we've ever had to a superhero sports figure. LeBron James. He's that good and what he's doing is that extraordinary at this age with over 40,000 minutes on the odometer. Back to football. I'm not going to go out on basketball. We still like football, everybody. (laughs) Drew Dinkmeyer plays NFL DFS every week religiously. I have built an entire website that only focuses on NFL players. Playerprofiler.com. We love the NFL. 
We just think that it could be better. And there are lessons to be learned by the National Basketball Association. And that's our opinion. And this is my show, and I invite guests on. And sometimes we share the same opinion. And in this case, Drew Dinkmeyer and I share that opinion. And I think that's okay. In the end, what we would like to see happen is for the NFL to adopt some of the practices and some of the coaching techniques used by their peers in the NBA. That's why we're having this discussion. It's not because we hate the NFL. We love the NFL. We're still conflicted about watching it because it's blood sport, but we still love it. And you know I love it because I'm already thinking about 2017. I'm already thinking about my fantasy drafts that are going to be happening in August, eight months from now. That's where my head is. So you know I love the NFL. What's that one player, Drew, that you are already locked in on, that you've already decided to draft no matter what his ADP is in 2017? I really like Corey Coleman. I'm big on Corey Coleman. Yes! I think you look at Corey Coleman's season, which was derailed a bit by injury, but mostly by the emergence of Terrell Pryor and very poor quarterback play at, at, at their position. You look to the offseason. Was it poor? I, I, I mean, the games that the games that he's played has been unbelievably poor. Like he missed all the competent games. He was out for all the competent games, all the competent quarterback play. He wasn't there for. He dodged those few Josh McCown games where the ball was delivered on time once in a while. Yeah, he was not there for those. So he has experienced nothing but incompetent quarterback play, which if you haven't noticed, Terrell Pryor went from basically being Brandon Marshall every week for a period of time to like, where's Terrell Pryor? That's not Terrell Pryor's fault. A little bit of a hint to those out there watching. And so you've got a situation where Terrell Pryor's a free agent. I'm not sure how they're going to handle him in the offseason. He gone. That's my guess as well. That, that their front office that will view him as an overpaid asset for what he's going to demand on the market. And that's going to leave the potential role of number one wide receiver on an offense that is likely to play from behind often because you're not going to over, overnight fix that defense on a, a team that has a very soft upcoming schedule. Next year, they get to play the AFC South and the NFC North. You think about the secondaries in the AFC South and the NFC North, and basically, yeah, the, the Jags with Jalen Ramsey are intriguing as, as a defensive secondary, maybe Houston secondary. Outside of that, the rest of those teams, and, may, and maybe Minnesota, those are all going to be softer matchups for Corey Coleman. Game script's going to be very favorable for him. This is a player who had unbelievable college production at an unbelievably young age. And as a result, I think he's going to this year, he was going in like the MFLs that I, I played. He was going in like round seven through 10. I don't think he's going to go that high next year even. Now, maybe the hype machine will catch up when Terrell Pryor leaves. Maybe that'll happen. At the very least, you're going to get him at the same price as you did this year with one extra year of development and hopefully a better quarterback situation than this year. What if Odell Beckham Jr. was drafted by a franchise in QB purgatory? Well, we don't know what would have happened to Odell Beckham Jr. That's it's a question without an answer. We know what happened to Corey Coleman, whose best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is Odell Beckham Jr. We do know the answer to what happens to Corey Coleman if he goes to a franchise like the Browns, 28 receptions, 373 yards. That's what happened to Corey Coleman, a negative 13.2 production premium, which looks at Corey Coleman's production 
on a per play basis and compares his output in any given game situation compared to what his peers at the position did in those same game situations, those same downs and distances. So negative 13.2, 79th in the league, shows you that Corey Coleman hasn't been efficient this year. And all you had to do was look at the catch rate, 43.8% catch rate. That's 103rd in the NFL. Is that because Corey Coleman doesn't have great hands? No, his drop rate's less than 5%. It's because he doesn't have a quarterback. (laughs) And we'll never know what Odell Beckham Jr. would have been on a team without a quarterback. He was drafted by the Giants. They have Eli Manning. I don't know what Corey Coleman would have done on the Giants. My guess is he would have been at least Sterling Shepard level productive. So if somehow, some way, the Cleveland Browns get a quarterback and Terrell Pryor doesn't return, it's game on for Corey Coleman. So I love that pick. Mine's Amari Cooper. I love what's happening with Amari Cooper lately. He's been underperforming. He's been missing expectations. He's missed expectations for the last seven consecutive weeks. Since that 35-point performance in Week 8 against Tampa Bay, all Amari Cooper has done is disappoint fantasy owners, and I believe that will reverberate, that perception will reverberate into 2017, and Amari Cooper will be a value on draft day because of it. I can say with definitive certainty, I know earlier I said we don't have a big enough sample size, but fuck it. Just forget I said that. I can say with definitive certainty that Amari Cooper is an elite NFL-level wide receiver. Because if he's not an elite NFL wide receiver, Drew, I give up. I give up. I can't do this anymore if he's not one of the best wide receivers in the league. Because at Alabama, stocked with quality skill position players, Amari Cooper posted a 47.2% college dominator rating. That's 91st percentile. Anytime you have a Division I wide receiver, especially one at a major conference, posting a dominator rating above the 90th percentile, that's exceptional. And not only that, he broke out as early as any wide receiver has ever broken out. Early on in his age 18 season, Amari Cooper was a starter for Alabama, and he was accounting for more than 20% of Alabama's receiving yards and receiving touchdowns. 18 years old. So he has the thing that's most important for identifying future stars at the wide receiver position. Age-adjusted college production. No one's been better than Amari Cooper looking at age-adjusted college production. You won't find a receiver in the NFL present, the NFL past, the NFL future. No one has been or ever will be the prospect that Amari Cooper was. And it's not just production. You look at his athleticism, look at the workout metrics. A 1069 agility score for a 211-pound wide receiver, that's unheard of. The players that post those super low sub-11-0 agility scores are Andrew Hawkins. They're diminutive, quick wide receivers. They're low to the ground, they have low centers of gravity, and they're light. They're not 6'1", 2'11". And if you watch Amari Cooper play, whether it's at Alabama, in drills at the Combine, with the Oakland Raiders, what you're seeing is a player that plays with precision and grace and controlled athleticism. And he's only 22 years old. 
He's only getting better. There's nothing not to like on the Amari Cooper resume, except he underwhelmed in the second half of 2016. Jeez. Wow. That's a really big deal. He underwhelmed in the second half of 2016. As if wide receiver production isn't generally inconsistent on a week-to-week basis anyway. I can pick any given swath of games on any wide receiver's game log and show you a period of time during that season that that particular player underwhelmed. That for a number of weeks, that player consistently missed his projection. That's the nature of the wide receiver position. It's volatile by its very nature. It just so happens that at the tail end of 2016, Amari Cooper had his poor performances. His 2016 was front-loaded. That's okay. That doesn't mean he goes from being a top three dynasty wide receiver to a wide receiver that's banished outside the top 10 wide receivers. No, I love Amari Cooper in all formats. I want him in dynasty and I want him in redraft. And if he's not good next year, I quit. I will give up fantasy football forever. You know who Amari Cooper is? He's Bryce Harper. Ooh. This is what happened in fantasy baseball. Bryce Harper, the first two years, the expectations for Bryce Harper were so incredible because he came up and he was compared to Mike Trout. And Mike Trout was an older version of Bryce Harper who had already had the growing pains of playing at an unusually young age for their prodigy talent. And that is exactly what has happened with Amari Cooper. And you know what happens after a few years of not living up to that hype of the prodigy talent? People get tired. And when they get tired, that's when you suddenly see Bryce Harper falling into the third and fourth round of fantasy baseball drafts. And that's when you say, all right, now I'm getting free upside. I'm getting free upside. And that's what's going to happen with Amari Cooper uh, next year. He's being held to this Odell Beckham Jr. standard, which is an unfair standard. And I'm happy. I'm happy about all of this. Please create value for me, fantasy gamers. Thank you. Because Amari Cooper has played well this year. A positive production premium. A positive target premium. 9.0 yards per target. That's top 40 in the league. His catch rate, 63.4, is 34th in the league. That's up significantly from his catch rate last year of 55.4%. So Amari Cooper has improved across the board. Every advanced efficiency metric on playerprofiler.com, Amari Cooper has improved. And during the stretch of games in which Amari Cooper posted less than 20 fantasy points, he faced some difficult matchups. Houston, Denver, Aqib Tlaib, A.J. Boye. And we know that the cornerbacks are matching up against Matter. But I feel like now wide receiver cornerback matchup analysis and the quote-unquote shadow factor, that that's jumped the shark in DFS analysis. Am I wrong? I don't think you're wrong. I think most of matchup analysis is dumb. And I think the reason most of it is dumb is because it's without the context of volume mattering more than matchups. Now, if matchups dictate volume, then that's interesting. But if matchups simply increase efficiency, but don't significantly increase volume, volume matters more. And so I spend all of our time with our weekly projections. I spend basically a full day 
working on number of plays I expect each team to run and how I expect those plays to be divided. And then I look at efficiency and how it can potentially move on the needle based on matchups. And the cornerback wide receiver stuff is interesting because most cornerbacks aren't shadowing. And as a result, most of the matchups are for like half the routes yes. that the cornerback is running. And most of the time, the D- the offenses are smart enough that when they're drawing up a play, specifically trying to get the ball to a guy, they're usually trying to do that a- against the more favorable matchup. So most of the time, you're just overanalyzing things that are lesser important on the spectrum of things that matter. And the thing that matters the most at the very start of your analysis each week when assessing a player's potential production is how many opportunities are they going to have? How many plays is the team that they're playing for going to run? How many of those plays are going to be directed towards this individual player? Because I... The example I always like to give is if you have a wide receiver projected for 10 targets and they're an eight yards per target wide receiver, that's 80 yards. They can drop down to six yards per target if they get 15 targets, if they get five more targets, drop two full yards per target. That's more valuable because volume is more important than the move on an efficiency meter week to week. And so I think in general, all of this stuff, when you talk about this team's bad against the run, this team's bad against the pass, so on and so forth. All of this stuff is is over-analysis in terms of the things that matter most, which is volume. And volume is easier to predict yep. than how a specific cornerback is going to influence a wide receiver's efficiency. And there is an example of heavy cornerback wide receiver analysis heading into Week 17 regarding Kelvin Benjamin. Kelvin Benjamin's recent streak of three consecutive games under five fantasy points is a distant memory, Drew, because this week he's facing Vernon Hargreaves. Hargreaves is horrendous. His Vernon Horrendous Greaves. That's really his name. He's he's bad. He's leading the NFL in yards against and fantasy points allowed to opposing wide receivers. Fortunately, in 2017, in January of 2017, you will be able to subscribe to the cornerback suite on playerprofiler.com and look up Vernon Hargreaves for yourself and see all these metrics. You're welcome. But the bottom line on Kelvin Benjamin is that his target share this season has been outside the top 30. What matters more for Kelvin Benjamin in week 17 is whether or not Devin Funches and Greg Olson play because that will impact his target share in a more meaningful and predictive way than anything that Vernon Hargreaves can do on the football field. And that's assuming that Kelvin Benjamin is an ordinary wide receiver. But Kelvin Benjamin's not an ordinary wide receiver. We're talking about Vernon Hargreaves as if Kelvin Benjamin can be covered by any corner. He can't be covered by any corner. There's no corner that can walk onto a football field, stand next to Kelvin Benjamin, look up at him and go, yeah, I think I can cover this guy. (laughs) No, you can't. And you don't even think you can. Even the most delusionally confident corner doesn't believe in his heart he could cover Kelvin Benjamin one-on-one. Kelvin Benjamin's like 6'10". Cornerbacks trying to cover Kelvin Benjamin are like flies around an elephant's tail. So on multiple levels, I believe that many DFS experts are focusing on the wrong sorts of details this week, but they're going to be right anyway with Kelvin Benjamin, but not for the reasons they've outlined on their fantasy football podcasts. 
I'm looking at our projections right now. We have him as a negative value. And we haven't removed Funches, who I think just got put on IR today. So we'll be redistributing targets. But that goes to your point. Like, it doesn't matter if Hargreaves can't cover him or not, as long as as long as you can, you know, tackle him. I mean, he's not going to run away from you. The problem with Kelvin Benjamin is that he can't catch balls that are in his catch radius regardless. Even if he does, he's not going anywhere after he catches it. Right. So you need the volume to sustain a player like Kelvin Benjamin. He's not going to make it on a big play. You need the volume. So how much efficiency could you potentially add based on a cornerback matchup? How much? For Kelvin, for a guy like Kelvin Benjamin, it has to be opportunity. and has to be very specific opportunity inside the red zone because it's going to be touchdowns that are going to drive his performance. It's not going to be yards, and it's probably not going to be catches because of his historical challenge catching the football. And it's really not even about Devin Funches because he hasn't been a full-time player this year. Right. If Greg Olson doesn't play, cross that red zone weapon off the list, and that would seriously elevate Kelvin Benjamin's potential output in week 17 but I'm not playing him just because he's matched up with Vernon Hargreaves on 50% of the snaps the greatest eight targets you'll ever get I mean what are you what are you getting from eight targets of Kelvin Benjamin literally if 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 Hargreaves falls down if falls down and Kelvin Benjamin catches the ball at the 50 yard line how far does he get if there's nobody within 10 yards he might get to the 30 like that's that you need multiple situations like that to happen for him to get there on the yardage alone and basically most of these efficiency boosts that you would be giving a player are yards based they're yards based with the underlying assumption that cornerback X will be covering wide receiver Y for the majority of the plays but we can never be sure of that. I mean, look at the clusterfuck of a projection that was Jordy Nelson in Week 16. We had him projected over 18 fantasy points, even facing a challenging matchup, potentially being shadowed by Xavier Rhodes. Potentially. And we felt great about it. We felt great about our Jordy Nelson projection last week because Jordy Nelson was performing at a high level most weeks. (laughs) It was a very easy projection to make regardless of the matchup. He's on a team that only throws the football, and he's the primary target, and he's been relatively efficient. Not super efficient, but he's been relatively efficient. So you put those things together. This is a guy with a 15-point floor most weeks. But then you start to read the analysis. Oh, yes. Should be staying away from Jordy Nelson. Xavier Rhodes could shadow him. Even though Xavier Rhodes has never shadowed anyone all year, he could shadow him. We don't know if he's going to shadow him. Some weeks, the fantasy analysts say, well, this player's not going to be shadowed. Julio Jones will not be shadowed by Peters. No, Peters always stays to his side. Xavier Rhodes always stays to his side. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to any fantasy gamers, in the meeting rooms, the Vikings have decided, heading into Week 16, that Xavier Rhodes will shadow Jordy Nelson. So Mike Zimmer is standing on the sideline expecting... Xavier Rhodes to be covering Jordy Nelson. And he looks up at halftime. Xavier Rhodes isn't even covering Jordy Nelson. This is what we talked about in the meeting. And this is Xavier Rhodes, who's not even a top 10 cornerback. We're having this discussion in the first place because Xavier Rhodes is perceived to be a top 10 cornerback, and he's not been a top 10 cornerback. Not close. So we're talking about multiple levels of bad assumptions. Xavier Rhodes is a top 10 corner. No, he's not. Xavier Rhodes is going to shadow Jordy Nelson for the majority of the game. We can't know that. Mike Zimmer doesn't even know that. Mike Zimmer was shocked at halftime to learn that Xavier Rhodes... 
He went rogue. That Xavier Rhodes went rogue. He went Rhodes. He was <laughs> derelict in his duty during the first half of the game, and he disobeyed his commanding officer, essentially. He went AWOL. That happened. So he didn't even execute the game plan that the coaches expected him to. If that's going to happen in the NFL, how the hell can anyone at Pro Football Focus think that they know who's going to cover who for a certain percentage of the snaps? What are we talking about? And not only that, let's assume that Xavier Rhodes is a top 10 corner, which he's not, and that he will be shadowing Jordy Nelson, which he didn't. Sometimes when a cornerback is shadowing you, that's a good thing because that means you're not facing double coverage on the other side of the field. God damn it! I don't know what to think! Why is it always the wide receiver has the tough matchup? Why is it never the cornerback has the tough matchup? That Xavier Rhodes in this hypothetical situation has a tough matchup with Jordy Nelson. Why is it? In, why, why do we always assume that the corner can shut down the wide receiver and that the elite wide receiver isn't just better than the cornerback? Why is that? I get you out of here on this one question, Drew. Conversations on Twitter yesterday devolved into a debate about meatloaf and the song, I'd Do Anything for Love. Does that song hold up? Yes. The reason it holds up is because the mystery associated with the song. What is it, Meatloaf, that you won't do? You'll do anything but that. What is that? That! I need to know what that is. What's the line? We're all searching for the line. Tell us! It's timeless. Has he told us? Has he come out? Has he come out publicly and shared with his audience, shared with his fans what that is? We don't know. And that's why it's timeless. I listened to it yesterday. I like that song. It's a good song. And I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. No, I won't. No, I won't start, Kelvin Benjamin. A couple weeks ago, I talked about the candle box because I heard that song on the radio and it immediately transported me back to 1995. Some songs do that. They're time machines. That's one of the great gifts of music. And the Meatloaf, I'd Do Anything for Love song has that effect on me. But that song came out a little bit before the Candlebox Far Behind song. I was an adolescent when that song came out. And that was the hottest video I had ever seen. I lived in a rural area growing up. We just got MTV. And I flip it to MTV and this video was on. And there are women in a bed together licking each other with very long tongues and doing that thing <laughs> at the end of their tongue, you know, the little flick of the tongue. Yes. You know that flick, Drew? Very, very well. You're familiar with that? Very. Yes. So I have very vivid memories of how that song made my life better. That song produced enough sperm in an adolescent Matt Kelly to repopulate the earth 100 times.
I can't wait for the football DFS heads to get their hands on this show and be like, fuck you guys. That's what you get, DFS audience, for flooding my freaking mentions every week with who's your top value play at wide receiver. I give up. I can't do this anymore if he's not one of the best wide receivers in the league. Vernon Hargreaves. Is that how you say his name? I think so. His Vernon Horrendous Greaves. That's really his name. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's a two-person show. we got to do this together. Normally, it's just like, oh, gee, thanks for letting me know. I'm going to go ahead and just wing it like I always do. <laughs> you just spew. That's it? <laughs> yes. Yes, and then I could just say something just to say it. And I don't even know if it's true because I'm not prepared, but it sounds right. I mean, I watched him play. He looks explosive to me. I watched the Red Zone channel. I saw I saw him score a touchdown. He can separate. You're conflicted emotionally about watching football, and as am I, so I just don't watch. How many players do you think have been drafted in fantasy football because that one wow factor catch burned a memory into that person's brain that could not be removed forever you then have a vision of a player's upside eternally etched into your head the julio jones carolina game where he posted 300 yards i had to watch that game i sat down and i watched the game just like a normal human being i was thinking i was like how did he do that let's watch <laughs> I did it, and it's sure enough. Every throw was to Julio Jones, and he was always open, and he was always catching it. Uh, pretty soon, he was up to 300 yards. <sighs> Look at that! That's how 300 yards happens. He's pretty good. My experience with people is they generally don't have any concept of what you're doing for them. Once you find the way you like to do things, you can't go back. You know, if you switch guitars, you know, and you realize, oh, wow, this Stratocaster is just a lot. I like playing this better. People are now accustomed to the sound. I can't go back to a Les Paul. It's never going to happen. It's over. I'll never play a Les Paul again. That sounds like it makes sense. I know nothing about guitars or music, but that sounds like it makes sense. Les Paul's harder to play, but it's it's viewed as the cooler guitar to play. A lot of people are drawn to it, but then eventually they, for whatever reason, they pick up a Stratocaster because a buddy has it or you know, something happens to their guitar and then they realize, oh, wow, this is this is much easier. It doesn't have as many knobs and it doesn't look quite as cool, but I could really get used to this. This is making my job a little bit easier. It's like a tennis player. Yeah, this is more up my alley. I grew up playing tennis my whole life. So I grew up playing with like Roddick and Marty Fish and those guys down here. Like Agassi, for example finally broke down at one point and upgraded rackets he stuck with his old racket for a long time after technology had moved past the racket he was using and for a couple of years he was using an obsolete racket and then somehow some way he decided to try out the latest technology <laughs> racket and he was like yeah. holy fuck right 
it's just the way he played the game and then the way he moves in the world and how everyone that collaborates with him wants him to succeed, wants to work with him like a director in Hollywood that everyone wants to work with, like a Steven Spielberg. Those guys are geniuses. Everyone wants to play with LeBron. Everyone wanted to help Andre Agassi turn his career around. Everyone wants to be in a Spielberg movie. And like that is a genius in and of itself. The ability to inspire people and to be so magnanimous that you are lifted up on the shoulders of others and they don't even care about getting credit for it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's one of the coolest things in the world. Because I'm from Maine and we had paper mills. And paper mills have a very distinct smell, a sulfur smell. And the way he described the orange juice factories, it was repugnant because you never thought of it. I couldn't believe it. It was such an, it was an epiphany. I was like, of course. Where do you think orange juice comes from in such high volumes? But it was the tennis academy surrounded by orange juice factories. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the world, Andre. Meatloaf at one time had the sexiest music video. They somehow created a video that, that fulfilled all of a 14-year-old Matt Kelly's fantasies. I mean, that happened. What is it, Meatloaf, that you won't do? One of my worst takes ever, ever, was I compared... <laughs> it's hard to even get... I can't even get this out, but... I compared James Jones to Andre Agassi. <laughs> it's bad. It's so bad. It was my worst take. One of... Oh, it's a, I had a lot of bad takes last year. <laughs> he needs to change his name to Flex Burkhead. It's not crazy. He played, uh, I think, 11% of snaps last week. It might be crazy. We can't play him, even in a GPP, and it makes me crazy. It's just, I just can't stand it. It makes me so mad. Randall Cobb's not even going to play. They converted Ty Montgomery to running back, and they, we still can't play Janice in GPPs? What the fuck, Drew? If only there was a Green Bay quarterback that was a country boy who liked to throw the ball down the field. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Imagine that. Jeff Janice needs a time machine. <laughs> Jeff Janice with Brett Favre? <laughs> they would be best friends. Holy shit. <sighs> okay. Where were we? GPP plays. <laughs> Brandon Cook's initials are GPP. <laughs> like uh, some cheesy rule of thumb, which you later invalidated by saying rules of thumb are stupid. That's all you gave me for my week 17 slate, assholes? If you don't win a championship, you are not a success. What is it, Meatloaf, that you won't do? You'll do anything but that. What is that? That's the strategy for week 17. Now we can go on and talk about literally anything else except daily fantasy. Thank God. That was the strategy. Duh. Of course. Hello. How did you not know that? Oh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fall into that trap, Matt Kelly. The way that he can generate velocity elegantly. That kills me knowing he's a douche. Just go away. 
Jordan Howard was in no way a threat to Jeremy Langford. (laughs) (laughs) I said that in August, Drew. Yeah! Woo! That's hot. Licking each other with very long tongues and doing that thing with the end of their tongue, you know? Yes. The little flick of the tongue. You know that flick, Drew? Very, very well. Very, yes. Very, very well. Very, yes. Very, very well. Very, yes. Oh, I do listen to the show. I love the show. And yes, I heard that Christopher Harris interview. And then, you know, give your thoughts on, on how it went. Mostly that it was great and that I'm great. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. It could have been a bot. I hope it was a bot. You distilled it down to a rule of thumb for this week. Play players with stakes and play players with no stakes. I wish I could go back in time in the show and point that out. No, Drew, I disagree. Calvin Johnson wasn't that good. I want to fight those people at a Buffalo Wild Wings. It's because he doesn't have a quarterback. (laughs) What is it, Meatloaf, that you won't do? There's no corner that can walk onto a football field, stand next to Kelvin Benjamin, look up at him and go, yeah, I think I can cover this guy today. (laughs) Sperm. You're familiar with that? Very, very well. Very well. Yes.